0: And I don't think people really understand how important it is to get that level of experience to be able to increase the batting average. I'm not saying you can't win without it, but it increases the batting average and likelihood for success so much more to have that foundation of education, the corporate understanding, and then apply it to your individual passions.
1: You're listening to Making It with John Davids. We are live with Rich Antonello. How are you doing, sir? Very well. Very excited to chat. Excited here too. Um, There's actually a ton to chat about, and I want to get to a bunch over the next 40 minutes or so. Um, People know you, of course. They know Complex. And I know a little bit about your story, but the more research I did, the more I learned, frankly. So I'd love to just hear from you. Uh, If you can just give us a quick minute on kind of your background, how you started Complex, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into it from there. Yeah,
0: you know, um, I'm going to go way back, um, but I'm going to do it fast. Is um, Luckily enough, where I grew up, I grew up in Brooklyn and uh, during the like late 70s into late 80s. So my formidable years are where really hip-hop was born, birthed, and continued to develop. And for me... Um, That was an important tenant because my passions were against that. You know, like we used to go shopping, go down to Fulton for sneakers and other things like that. And what's important is, is I, I had those passion points in a very pure, real way. But when I first started my career... I went in and got very big corporate experience at Saatchi and Saatchi, worked on Procter and Gamble, went to Rolling Stone and Men's Journal at Winter Media, went to National Geographic, a massive global brand. And I got really um, foundational corporate experience to understand the business side of it. And then I had an opportunity when I met Mark and Seth to help them um, blow up complex and really think about what it could be. So I was able to apply my vertical passions from a childhood perspective with um, some a really nice, almost nine, 10 years of super corporate experience. So I, I had all of the chops of the large scale corporate houses, but I, was, I had the passion and the reference points on a personal basis to do what my individual fandoms and, pers- and, and passions were all about. And I I don't think people really understand how important it is to get that level of experience to be able to increase the batting average. I'm not saying you can't win without it, but it increases the batting average and likelihood for success so much more to have that foundation of education, the corporate understanding, and then apply it to your individual passions.
1: That's interesting because, and and like, like you said, when you look at your LinkedIn, it's like corporate, corporate complex. Uh, but that, that was intentional. You, you were getting the background and getting oh, I the wish education. It was
0: intentional. No, I wish it was intentional. No, I, I I'm just a uh, poor kid from Brooklyn who had no choice. So if I wanted to get into marketing and other things like that, I didn't have, I didn't, I couldn't go to daddy and get some capital. I didn't understand how to raise capital. I had to go to the biggest places, cut my teeth in New York. And I, I had not planned to be an entrepreneur. Um, it kind of came to me later in life at 30. And um, the opportunity presented itself. And I was almost a, uh, I wish I could say I was deliberate about it. I wasn't. I just um, optimized and maximized to an insane degree the opportunities
1: that were afforded me. And so what was that, that opportunity in, in, I think it was 2002?
0: Yeah. So when I met those guys, um, they had just launched the first, um, um, issue of the magazine and it was Nas and uncle junior on one side, Rosario Dawson on the other. And it was supposed to be like a buyer's guide on one side and have some Japanese magazine influence. And then a kind of like lifestyle magazine on the other side. And I said to the guys, I'm like, listen, you guys remind me of the Truman show. And they're like, what the hell do you mean by that? And I was like, possibly the greatest concept ever for a movie with the shittiest execution (laughs) of all time. And um, we all laughed a little, um, but we ended up just kind of like screaming at each other in the most healthy way about really what it should be. And the and at this point, I know it sounds dumb, but like we talked about concentric circles of the fact that you know people had multiple interest points, the same way they had multiple music interests, the same way they had multiple passion interests. And everybody previous to that really attacked everything in a very verticalized way, right? A verticalized specialty only. They didn't really take the entire aperture of an individual into account. And they definitely didn't take the influence of culture as like a, a, like a kind of commonality of cartilage across all those topics. And when I started explaining that, they were like, yes, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And I'm like, yeah, I think it's obvious what you're trying to do, but you don't know how to do it. And I had the opportunity to come in and kind of form this uh, reform, not just the narrative and the storytelling, but bring um, a different level of advertising relationship and brand relationship, but even more so a thought process on how to optimize a very diverse
1: distribution idea of how, how to win across that board as well. So just to set the scene for all of us, you come in, were they, were they coming to you as a potential client? Did you meet at a, at a gathering? Well, How did we, you... met out,
0: we met out. Um, number one, I ran into them at like a party. We had just won the national magazine award for adventure magazine at Nat Geo. And I ran into a guy named Rob Weinstein, who was the VP of marketing for Echo at that time. And he's like, you got to meet these guys. They're crazy. They're like, you know, you're going to be kindred spirits. Right. Um, and they were right. He was right. Uh, we met in the office. It was supposed to be an hour meeting. It turned into four and a half hours. And it was it became very clear very quickly that that was the opportunity to be had.
1: Interesting. So, so you're you're talking to them. They have this magazine. You see an opportunity, and then how did you actually become a business partner?
0: I mean, that was look. I was leaving a very lucrative corporate job. And I had an opportunity to go over there into um, a much more challenging circumstance. We had no leverage. They were a clothing company who didn't know anything about not only publishing, but really media in general. Um, the world was changing very quickly. That was kind of like the beginning of like the, the descent of magazines. They were trying to get into it at that point. So they're trying to like run uphill and run up a, a descending hill on top of it. and. There, it, it was one of those situations where I, I went to my father and I said, I'm like, I have this great corporate job. I work for one of the best brands in the world in National Geographic. I make very good money. Um, I have a very nice career trajectory. And he goes to me, goes, well, if you think you're so smart and you have this big plan and you could do it against these topics that you love so much, go out and prove it. And uh, so of course, instead of getting advice from my father, every time I go to my, I went to my father for advice, I would get a challenge back and um, you know, very strategic on his part because I'm a very competitive person. So it was the right way for him to attack it. And I quickly realized it wasn't about making the most money and be the safest. It was about doing what I loved and also being in control of doing what I wanted. Like to be able to go, this is my vision for this, and here's how we're going to go and attack it and then be responsible for that level of execution across all aspects of the business um, is a little daunting, but at the same time, was very exciting.
1: So you built Complex over what seems to me as a student of media over the course of really like, I don't know, four or five different generations of media. I mean, you were there before Facebook even existed. You started this magazine and then you ran this thing until, I mean, really it was just, it went public through a SPAC just a a few months before this. So what was that like? If you can take us through kind of in bullet points, did you see complex in different phases? Like this is, you know, version one, this is V2, V3.
0: No, it's, it's kind of
1: opposite of that.
0: Um, I you know I I like to I like to make things very simple. Uh, I make the joke. I'm like I'm not that smart. I need to make it just very obvious, right, and very simple. And my viewpoint was is we were never should have never been defined by our distribution platform. No one should. No media brand because your your real product is the audience you're bringing to the table, not. The fact like a magazine shouldn't be defined by print, the printed page, like that's the conduit to what the end product is. Because the way you make your money is with your community, the audience that you impact and influence, the value of that, the manner in which you can make money from them. It's the the words in the magazine or the video on YouTube or the like this video on streaming, all of those things uh, or the products you sell them like. It's the audience that is the end product. So my viewpoint was very simple, that it led to us having a very fluid, uh, It like the iterations of most media brands are very painful, right? People do not like change. And I mean that on the business side of things and the content development side of things. People who, who learned how to write and got a job writing don't want to learn video. They didn't want to learn social. Uh, people who learned how to sell print magazines and circulation didn't want to learn digital. They didn't, you know, like, it. it, it and I, I mean this in the most general sense, right? But my viewpoint was if this, if we are attacking and we're the most relevant youth culture brand in these verticalized topics of sneakers, hip hop, style, art, and design, and then we have to be the most relevant brand on all of the platforms against the youth culture play so you can't be romantic about what you originally launched in or what originally worked so we went from you know if you think about all the iterations of this mag, uh, this this brand we went from a magazine to a digital ad network to an owned and operated network to a distributed media plot brand platform and within that we also went from printed text to digital text to digital, short form digital video, to long form digital video, to social distribution on a short term basis, a short form basis with long form super premium content as well. So we've iterated multiple ways, both in format and distribution, and constantly been ahead of the curve in every one of those iterations.
1: And so that that makes a ton of sense and I agree with you I think that lesson is actually applicable to to many I mean to every business really is that you can't be romantic about what worked yesterday you've got to look at what's going to work now and in the future and and what what the customer wants but the implication there in a huge way is is the business side of it and the most clear example is you know Netflix came along and basically blew up Hollywood and blew up the last five, six, seven decades of the way the business was done. Did So how do you balance, okay, this is what the audience wants versus this is how we make money?
0: Well, I look at it and it's kind of funny. I'm a huge fan of Jeff Bezos, right? Um, I happen to think he's the best CEO that has ever walked the earth. And why is no one's ever done the right balance of he's always got enough stickers in the fire of like new things to come out. They don't all have to win. But like, oh, our growth is slowing from our our foundational e-commerce business. Oh, we have this little AWS cloud thing. Oh, that's slowing. Oh, wait, hold on. We're going to use our flywheel of Prime to launch Prime Video as well and extend the consumer base and deepen it. Oh, by the way, how how many other brands in the world could have... Had a fa- a two billion dollar failure like the Fire Phone, and it'd barely be a hiccup in the history of the company. Nobody even talks about it. Steve Jobs lost his lost his own company because of a failure that was one tenth as large as the Fire Phone. Jeff Bezos it barely dented the Amazon stock because he doesn't he never put all of his eggs in one basket and was always was always also in enough things of what was going to define the future but he didn't count on that money coming until later so he 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 was constantly oscillating between audience and the target audience and the offerings and then timing the lag of when they were gonna start contributing to the business as well. So it was a mastery of knowing where the world was going, but not just where, but when it would be an inflection point to be meaningful to the business on both a revenue and an EBITDA basis. And to me, that's mastery. So you need to understand, it's like, okay, we wanna be ahead of the curve, but we wanna be, how how are we ahead of the curve on a balanced investment basis and then when will that lag, when will the, the, the red turn to black on an EBITDA basis so that we can tuck into the, the cash flow part of the business so that when the, we can then do half distributions and take some of that cash and put it back into R&D for the next wave of bets we want to make. And then balancing the time continuum of that, to me, is the mastery
1: absolutely and, and f- figuring out j- just to sum that up figuring out what, what you're doing today and then what you're investing in tomorrow because what you're doing today is probably not going to be around tomorrow in the same in the same way it is
0: so and the, world, and the world is so fragmented and segmented you can't afford to make one big bet anymore you can't you can have to it, you have to spread to your table like you got to make multiple bets because the audiences change the macro marketplace changes the micro marketplace changes your capital situation changes, like all of those things are oscillating. You need to be able to throttle things up and throttle things down very quickly.
1: And for the people that, that were introduced to Complex over the last five or 10 years, they probably know, um, you know, they know events, they know uh, YouTube stuff, they know the website. Uh, and you I'm mentioned there, sorry? hot sauces hot, Oh hot sauce of course well that's a YouTube you of course hot ones so you, how how deliberate were you or I mean were there I guess my question is were there a hundred things that didn't work and that's what we know today or did you sort of say okay no this is what we're gonna do and you stuck with it
0: no I, I, um, I think it's it's not as complicated as that. I go back we're, we're very we've always been very cognizant as a company and a leadership team of who we are and what we mean to the end consumer and how effective that offering can be. Now, you have to remember, we rate, We built this whole company on approximately 30, 32 and a half million bucks. Most of our competitors have raised 10, 15, 20 times that, and they're barely larger than we are, right? And I don't mean that just from an audience. Some of those people that have raised a lot more than us are smaller than us from a revenue perspective. And I don't say that as boo-hoo for us. I'm just saying when you have that much less capital, your batting average of what you launch has to be much higher. You can't afford to swing and miss on a large-scale basis to the same degree. You have to be very deliberate about the, the totality of your bets, the size and scale of them on an absolute basis, and then how quickly you all, how much, how, and I, and the less capital you have the more the less patience you're going to have to have as well. So there's so many triggers in there. But for us what we always did, we were very sober. It's like here's what who we are. Here's what we mean to the end audience. What is the right product for us to launch? Not what we want to launch, but what we feel will resonate with the audience that is white space in the industry. Like when we launched ComplexCon, no brands, no publishing brands had a con. We were the people were like, you know, you had Comic-Con and a couple of other things, but nobody had ever organized like their genre and said, "We're going to bring in the best in class vendors. We're going to bring the best in class conversations of what the culture should be talking about. We're going to bring in the best in class music acts and we're going to throw the Super Bowl for culture." And you know, Most people were like, oh, my God, that is a gigantic, ambitious thing. To me, it was very obvious. We had an ad network before where we aggregated all of the best blogs and best voices. And we basically almost on a collusion basis owned all of the most relevant voices in hip hop style, art design and sneakers all at one time. All we were going to do is bring that to life from a complex con perspective. It worked. Every day, 365 days a year, when we were an ad network, why wouldn't it work from an event
1: perspective? And was that a hit off the bat or did, did that take oh a while? It was
0: humongous. We had no idea. I mean, the first year we sold 38,000 tickets at like $175 a pop. And the energy, it wasn't just the money, but the energy that was there. And, and now having the artists, uh, and by the way, I mean that most expansive way possible artists, music, um, designers be able to meet and connect with their fans for the first time ever. Um, the energy on the floor, what it meant for the culture, how it elevated people like it reinvigorated people like Takashi Murakami, who was a fantastic artist, but had kind of was just was not as relevant. And it elevated people like Virgil, uh, Abloh, who was there for the first time. I mean, you know, When you had Takashi Murakami in a in a clear booth with Virgil Abloh, live screen printing products for people, like think about that. But this was done in 2016, so someone has to make that happen. Someone has to have the vision to go. Here's what the community wants, and not just wait for the community to tell you. There's a lot of people who are chasers as brands. We've never been that. We've been definers, and I think that's where. Um, it's a little scarier, but I'll tell you. Because if you're a definer, that also means someone probably hasn't is either hasn't done it. There's no competition, or they've done it very poorly. So when you go out, you the likelihood to win. I think gets higher. It's it gets it's lower nat- organically because it's never been done before. But it's higher because of your innate knowledge of both the consumer understanding of culture. And, and the value exchange between the two.
1: And, and as the first timer doing it, you really have to take a bit of a risk and, and put yourself out there. Um, I want to ask about something that that I've never fully understood. And maybe that's because it, it is just really complicated. But the financing part of Complex, you mentioned a minute ago that the whole brand was built on $30 million. It's, it's a massive global brand. At some point, I feel like you were acquired and then you were sold and then acquired again. What what was kind of the the steps there?
0: So we had raised venture capital for the first time in 2009. So we took on funding right as Echo's business. We were previously an LLC uh, that was part of a larger hold co of Echo Unlimited. So the clothing brand was still feeding us working capital and other things like that. When when the Echo brand started having their issues, I mean, the, like everybody in the globe had their issues in 2008, right? So there was the big financial recur, like reset. Plus there was, um, they had gotten into real estate um, around um, launching hard uh, stores and other things like that. So we were Hard up for capital, and I had an opportunity to go raise capital, and we brought on money from Excel and it on Austin Ventures, uh, two AAA venture firms at that point. And um, then in 2016, fast forward, uh, we had an opportunity. We had had a conversation in September of 2015. We had taken on 20 million dollars from Hearst. Um, so it had it had barely hit our balance sheet and. Come January, we started having very big strategic conversations with a joint venture of Hearst and Verizon. And by, we the deal closed in uh, the end of May 2016. So we basically exited 100% to the JV of Verizon and Hearst. So we just shifted from a venture capital backing to an ownership structure of those two guys. Over the years, Verizon was getting very aggressive into media. Um, with Go90 and a few other things. Didn't work out. Verizon became disinterested. We were looked at as more of an investment asset. But because of the nascency of the of the business and the potential for growth, Complex shouldn't be run exclusively for EBITDA, exclusively for cash distributions. We still should be doing a balance and be growing. And everybody agreed. And uh, we, I started having conversations with Jonah Peretti, who is the CEO of BuzzFeed, in January of 2021 and we were able to realize that a recalibration, a merger with BuzzFeed um, and then going public through a SPAC with 890 partners would recapitalize our business, um, dedicate, not only put more capital on the balance sheet, but then have that capital be more about growing the brands again. And for somebody like me who built this, it was very important that the brand continues to live on, be exceptionally well-funded, continues to be very relevant in the space, allows for the people that have continued to build this with me um, to elevate their careers, but continue to expand their careers by an investment as well. And we were able to check every box in a very challenging backdrop and get that deal done. Um, to me, which was very exciting because now I could feel great about the future of the brand in its home and give the people. uh, And I mean that both the audience, as well as my staff, a very good situation to be able to continue to grow. And that allowed me to
1: turn the page on my career and think about it differently. I was going to say, the, the, the other big takeaway there, because everything that you said makes a ton of sense, you were recapitalized, you were partnering with uh, another iconic brand, BuzzFeed, but this also meant that you were going to step aside, or was there ever a conversation that maybe you would helm the ship, or was part of it strategically that you would uh, step aside?
0: It was time for me to take a minute, spend a little bit more time with my family, also not be insane from a day-to-day perspective, like not having to talk to lawyers, like legal and HR is, um, and by the way, those are two of my favorite groups of people, but it's more of the situations to deal with. The fact that I don't have to ever do that, or at least for now, not do that is a very attractive thing to be able to really sit in strategy world and not be as concerned about the day-to-day operations and the tactics of how that strategy manifests is possibly one of the most
1: exciting things that's ever happened to me. As much as I thought it was going to be great, it's much better. It's very, very liberating. I have one more complex question before we uh, move on to what you're doing now. And that is, so much of success in business is really just staying alive and, you know, living to fight another day. And I don't know what the, what the dynamic was like. So 2002, all the way to pretty much present day, you know, 2021 or 22, are, are was there, were you doing well most of the time or were there times where it was like, okay, we got to get past this because this is a near-death experience. Did you have those or, or was it pretty much good sailing?
0: <laughs> We had so many near-death experiences; it's not even funny. Um, Like I could be like, which which of the fifteen you want to talk about? Um, I'd
1: I'd love, honestly, I'd love to hear about one, Rich. Give give me one kind of moment, you know, um, in your life.
0: Okay, so here's a perfect case example: is the end of two thousand and seven. The magazine we had launched the digital ad network in September of two thousand and seven. And we had aggregated a whole bunch of these great websites and the digital business was just, I mean, we were just so ahead of the curve. We were truly a verticalized ad network where everybody else, like you can't call yourself a verticalized ad network. And it's like, who's your target? Women. Oh, half the planet. Half the planet is your target. And that's, you're going to tell me that's verticalized, right? So we were really the only organized vertical ad network. Uh, the, The advertiser and the community and the brands loved it. The business was exploding. The print in general, not just us, but everybody. That was the reset of print. Then the world started crumbling a little bit. And CIT, which was Echo's line of credit, which was by by, by transference, our line of credit, started to get shaky as well. So there were a lot of cuts that needed to be made when we had when we had to relook at the capital and the working capital that we were going to have. And we had a very challenging conversation where, you know, Echo was like, okay, we need 20% cuts across the board. And I'm like, if I cut 20% of my staff, we we're a media businesses, people. And if we cut 20% of our staff, we might as well close the, close the business, close the digital, close everything. I went to all of our executive team, which wasn't deep at that point, but, I said, listen, if we all take 40 to 60% pay cuts, we can keep every single person on staff. We can give them the money that they need. We can keep the business humming along. We can continue to grow and operate this to get ourselves through the bridge to get to the better place because I believe in where we're going. And to, to the credit of the executive team, you know, I thought, okay, I'm asking people to take 40 to 60. The 60% pay cut was me. But I was asking people to take 40% pay cuts pretty much. And not one person said no. Every single person signed up for it. With, everybody was repaid the year later. We did so well because we hung in that everybody's shortfall was, was repaid in an additional bonus and everybody got that money back. But the bottom line is, is to be able to... Could you imagine
1: trying to have that conversation in today's day and age? I, I, and I, I was going to say, I can honestly think about two or three people having the conversation with them, for, former team members, and, and they would just laugh at me. I'm not sure they would say yes.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a little passionate, and I could be rather convincing is probably a good word for it. But uh, look, when if you can be honest and sober... And people truly do believe in you, your conviction, and your vision, and the fact that we were doing something very different than everybody else out there. And I've always been very transparent about what the vision and what what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, when we're going to be successful, how successful we'll be. That, That came back to me in spades at that point. And it's one of my, probably my most proud moments of being a leader. Um, because it wasn't just me, we, we all as a team rallied together. And when you have that level of pervasiveness and are able to tell people, and by the way, we were transparent, we told the whole team, we're like, we're going to absorb these cuts as an executive team. You are not going to have a cut of your salary and you are not, not one person on this team is losing their job.
1: Wow. It's
0: amazing. It's amazing that you were able it's to pull that off. It's galvanizing beyond belief. Because when you come around the corner and you get over that hump, oh, what you've just done! I mean, you've survived in a foxhole together. Is what you've done?
1: Yeah, it it it, it brings you. It actually leaves you stronger at the other side than you would have been had it just been business as usual. Five five x stronger. Yeah. How did you guys, one thing you've done so well over the years is you've really tapped into culture and, and like become, when I say iconic, I mean I feel like there is a complex aura, you know, whatever you're gonna call it. You you really define culture in a way that a lot of brands say they want to or maybe think they do, but they really don't. How did you tap into that so innately?
0: Well, I don't think we tapped into it. Like I, I we were participants in where it was going. You know, we didn't allow, we weren't, we made sneaker culture more popular. We didn't go, oh, now let's go write a column the way like GQ did or bleacher reports, like, oh, let's go and launch kicks. Like, are you kidding me? Like you're jumping on the caboose and you're gonna tell me you're relevant and you have an impact and influence over the audience. You waited for the, the, the audience to be developed, and now you're trying to basically exploit it, and that's something we've never done, is everything we've participated in, every category and every vertical and every passion point, we took when they were subcultures or more niche-oriented, at least the way most mass market looked at it, and we elevated it to the center of relevancy. We were a participant in doing that. We were like, this should be, this is not getting the attention it deserves, Let's participate with the creators in this space to elevate it. And that's why the respect that we have with the creators and the artists is on a different level than a lot of brands. In addition to the fact that that's why we're the only people who are able to like some of our supposed competitors have tried to launch festivals and they can't, they give away tickets for free and they can't get 5,000 people to show. We charge $300 a ticket and get 75,000 people to show up. To me, that's the definition of brand relevance and chaser. But you know, not everybody understands that because they, you know, believe the hype, pardon the yeah. pun. Um, but but it's it's to me, that's I, I don't think it's tapping into it. It's being a participant, putting our money where our mouth is, putting our audience and our power and the impact of our brand to go, no, we're gonna take the spotlight and take it off this you know, very vanilla crap, and we're going to put it on the right area of what is really what is influencing youth culture more than you think, and deserves more credit. And that's what we've just done over and over and over again.
1: And you did it so well. I want to talk about something that, that you mentioned it before, and, I, and I'm a fan of hot ones. Uh, so it's it's a show. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. If you haven't, it's literally just questions with celebrities and and an uh, interviewer. And every question, you eat another progressively hot wing, and the questions simply <sighs>
0: really get a little bit more uncomfortable as well. Like that.
1: So, okay. I, I have, so first question, how, what, what, was the, was this like an intentional thing or did this just happen one time? How did you come up with this idea?
0: So the host um, Sean is, uh, was a complex new was an original one of our original five complex news anchors. So he was already in the building from a talent perspective. So, and Chris Schoenberger was the EIC, the editor-in-chief of First We Feast, which was our food culture site. And we were, I was very aggressive into getting into video. And I was like, look, we're going to get into long form video very aggressively in the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. I know that sounds very done now, but very few people were doing that yet. Most people had not gotten aggressively into video until Facebook did and other things like that. So we were like, we're going to do it. And if we were going to jump in, I was never going to check a box to do video, just to do video. It wasn't going to just be short form crap. We had to develop franchise. We had to act like a television network with digital distribution. So we were going to create content series, franchises, with like that are repeatable audiences and not like one trick pony type stuff, which is the what the early web video from publishers. So we were just very aggressive from jump. And the challenge to each of the brands was what is a franchise? What is a, a, a series? And to Chris Schoenberger's credit, he comes back and pitches this show. Like we're going to do like 10 questions, 10 Ten wings. The wings get hotter. It's gonna like disintermediate the everyone's media training, and let's try it out. And you know, it's not a very expensive show to produce. <laughs> like a black, a black drape, like a little black cocktail table. Ten wings, uh, twenty wings. Ten for the host, and and Sean does an unbelievable job. He does a ton of research and asks probably. He's he's arguably one of the better interviewers I've ever seen. And um, but the the amount of work that everybody puts into this show and it's what's amazing is you think we torture our guests more than any interview show in the world. Yet people are in love with participating with the show as well, because it's it's not pulling teeth like going on Fallon or Kimmel. And oh, my God, I have to do the same dumb shit all over again. Now I get to go do something absolutely amazing. I get to give my fans what they want and I get to act like a human. And yeah. I think we've unlocked something there and that is just very different, very hard to reproduce. It has spawned six hot sauces, hot honey. Um, we launched uh, frozen chicken nuggets with Walmart this year. Um, it, is, it is an anomaly because it is the ultimate in 360-degree, a case study in 360-degree brand development.
1: Well the, and the magic of it is just what you said. It, you know you could say, well it's it's just an interview show. no, no, the, the magic of it is that you get people so off their media training, you're having conversations that you couldn't possibly have anywhere else because people mouths are on fire they' <laughs> right. they're, 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 they're not thinking about the perfect answer. They're just they're just having a conversation at that and point.
0: Never discount physical humor and physical pain. It is it's fascinating. Everyone loves it, right? Like everyone loves it. So it's just, look, but you know what I love about that is we have that, we have sneaker shopping with Joe LaPuma. We used to have everyday struggle. We have pizza, pizza wars. We have todos con tacos. We have um, the burger show. We have done this over and over and over again with unbelievable content. And we've also done some great long form stuff with QB1 on Netflix we just did the the Cuddy documentary, a man named Scott, on Amazon Prime. If you have not seen this, uh, the director Rob Alexander is a guy who used to work at Complex. He did an unbelievable job bringing this to light. It is a ridiculous. It's probably the best, most beautiful visual documentary exploring a very complicated man in a very complicated uh, story, and does it so beautifully. And Cuddy was just so open and generous with his story. It's it's an amazing movie. And for us to be able to do everything from short news segments to movies like that and series like QB1, it speaks to the diversity and the power of the foundational brand. Because what we do is we understand storytelling. Some people understand storytelling. Some people understand their audience. Very few understand their audience and storytelling to the same degree we do. It's why we're not just a business or a brand; we're a brand business, and that's another. We're an anomaly in that respect.
1: So, what do you spend your time on today? Are you still active day to day, or are you moving on? So, uh, I have. Uh, I'm.
0: I've. I'm still consulting very largely with BuzzFeed and Complex and all the brands in the in the play. I, you know, those are my family, and Jonah is one of the smartest people I've ever met on the face of the planet, and it's very enjoyable for me to continue to be very. Involved strategically, but like I said, alleviated of any day-to-day concerns, um, which has opened up the ability for me to sit on boards and advise and help other people. So what I'm focusing on is really organically growing categories. Things like Web3, blockchain, online gambling, cannabis, um, with very talented but in need of support CEOs and upstart companies that are nascent. And I'm taking my ability to market, position, build and develop communities, build and develop IP, and understand how to make all those work very successfully. I'm bringing that to that type of group in that that sector. So I'm doing consulting and advising and a lot of angel investing. And ideally, a lot of that crosses over as well.
1: So is there anything, uh, whether it's something you're investing in or just a category that you're looking at that, that we can dig into now?
0: I mean, uh, look, there's a lot. Um, there's a very interesting NFT platform called Nifty's, which is taking the ZIG approach to everyone else sagging. They're, they're going, let's make this truly democratized, and we're going to bring the pricing down. We're going to work with the biggest brands in the world, like the Matrix and Space Jam, Warner Brothers, and and allow for that IP to be rethought from an NFT, not just the normal PFPs and JPEGs that are out there. Not, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's a very verticalized, heavy user audience. I think that what I love about what Nifty's and Jeff Marsilio, the CEO, is doing is They're going, we're going to really bring this to everybody, both from a price point perspective, take the friction out of the technology and work with some of the biggest brands in the world to allow people to adopt this on mass usage, which to me is brilliant. Then there's a company called Popchoo with Rushar, who just raised a ton of money that is really a creator enablement platform to take advantage of both ghost kitchens and really just food delivery and bring a new revenue line item to very differentiated
1: creators um company called is pop2 du- the one are they the one that allow creators to brand their own ghost kitchens is that yeah so they okay. did uh, they did bitcoin pizza with
0: anthony pompolano yeah. they they um uh have some i there's some stuff i just can't talk about right now that they're about to announce um i would love to be able to say it cuz it's <laughs> it's mind bending what they're about to do you know there's just it's it's very exciting for me to be able to deal with and and help other people not
1: make the same mistakes i made in my right. operational <laughs> career but that, see- that's what every 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 entrepreneur uh, seasoned entrepreneur says that but at the end of the day everyone everyone does make mistakes <laughs> it, oh, no it, no no they'll
0: they'll make different ones but if i can make them avoid the, the potholes that i stepped in that means the likelihood for success is higher and it means that they'll experience less pain, right? So,
1: yeah, let, let's dig into those two because I actually, uh, I want to start with a second. This is a really interesting concept and the audience probably doesn't know a, a lot about it. So at a high level, you have creators, you have people that have big YouTube channels, TikTok, etc., And the concept is, I'm a be creator.
0: Big, big, big music people. Like music it does matter. It's like anybody with a following who... Is thinking about themselves as a brand, right? Not everybody, not every one of those creators, artists think about themselves as a brand. I know it's very in vogue, but not everybody wants to put the work in to bring, activate a deeper connection with their end consumer and allow for not just more revenue to be made, but to be have a better value exchange with those, with the end consumers and their fans as well.
1: Right. So you take somebody like Anthony Pompliano-Pomp, who's a big Bitcoin influencer, he does Bitcoin pizza. And then essentially what what Popchoo does is they're going to go to pizza joints across the US or across a certain uh, geography. They're going to rebrand or they're going to create a a sub-brand for a period of time and you can order the Bitcoin pizza. Is that essentially the model?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There's also um, taking advantage of the, the current phenomenon and structure that has been in place with some ghost kitchens as well. So the, the, it, the, 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 think about it this way. It's a creator and artist empowerment platform that is that brings both the content development, the narrative and storytelling about food as an experience. So it's not just the transactional nature of the food, but it's why this person wants to bring this to the life and, some, and create a narrative of why it matters to their fan base as well. This is not quite as transactional as a lot of other platforms out there. It's understanding that it's not like these artists and creators, they want, if they want to have a long relationship with their fan base, it really has to be a quality two-way street all the time. And it's not about, Oh, by the way, here's my new pizza or my new face cream or my new that like, there's too much of that already. This is let's partner together. We have a shared vision of developing food as a revenue line item for you, where you can now deepen, we're going to have content around this. We're going to explain why this is important, why the food, like what, what is great about this food and how can I make it special as a creator on top of that from a branding experience for my fan base. There's, and there's not a lot of people who understand, care that about that nuance to that degree. And what I love is pop true is really enabling creators to find a partner in food rather than an open service platform to just be transactional with their audience. And there's a huge chasm between those two.
1: Yeah. And and, and it makes a big difference. And then I want to touch on the NFT thing because this is obviously a massive category. And I think the evolution of NFTs, obviously, it starts with art and design and and what we're seeing now uh, as the big NFT trends but I, I do think that the use case for NFTs are, is so massive and we're not even anywhere oh. near there yet. What, what, what is the NFT use case in your mind?
0: Oh, I mean, you know, look, the, my, the best answer I can give you is, is I'm not going to limit it right now. I, I don't think that's the way to think about it. I actually also, like right now it's been launched from an art perspective, You know, to me, I think you have to, the best and most exciting NFT projects I've seen have been more IP oriented than outright just art, right? It's it's not just the utility of the community it brings, but thinking about, okay, I'm going to give you a visual representation um, that you're going to buy, but I'm going to bring all of these elements with it. So I'm going to bring that IP to life or the community you're buying into to life with you. And to me, that's the right use case. I don't look at NFTs as a direct replacement for like, I don't look at like OpenSea or SuperRare as a replacement for Sotheby's. Like I don't, I think there's too many people that are trying to simplify what that actually is. I I, I think about it completely differently. It's like an open marketplace for communities right now, but and this is what I like about too many of the platforms, I believe, are looking to develop new-to-world communities only. I like what I love about what Nifty's is doing is thinking about taking already installed communities and now bringing them into the, the, the Web3 digital age and deepening that level of experience and expanding what IP can mean to the end consumer and their participation in it. And I think that is what's very exciting about that individual company. But I think that the, the the totality of all of these efforts and all of these platforms is what's going to drive what, what NFTs can be together. It's not going to be one or the other. It's going to be both and a whole lot in between as well.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I was talking with a, an NFT, a, a sort of a, a big name in the NFT space a few weeks ago, and, and he summed it up for me, actually gave me an explanation that was so simple, but actually made me think. Uh, this actually this is, is probably the clearest explanation I've heard. And that is the big challenge in the digital world is that scarcity doesn't exist. Everything is infinite. There, there's never a way to limit what you have. And if we're going to be moving further and further into the digital world you have to have a way to make things scarce and nft answers that question
0: um yeah the i think maybe ultimately it has to get there but right now i i it, it, you, that i actually don't like that explanation um and here's why because if you if out of one side of your mouth you just said there's there's no limit you can't if you're saying you're going to try and create scarcity, um, that's the wrong word, because by definition, it's counterintuitive to what you just said on the one side of your mouth. I, I, if you want to use the word differentiation or, um, prioritization, um, and, and, and create levels and tiers of what that is, then yes, I'll believe that creating a false scarcity because now it's no, you're changing the definition of scarcity. I think it's about creating differentiation. And that's to me is where the utility in these communities come into play. Who's a part of that community? How active are they in that community? How two way is that community? Do some of these communities become DAOs? Like that, it's not about trying to create something that is counterintuitive to foundationally what it is, which is limitless. So that's fake scarcity. I think it's differentiation and that's differentiation is the new scarcity. I think, sorry, I think there's a tweak that needs to be had to that to be not just to be intellectually honest about it.
1: Yes, scarcity is probably a um a, a funny word to use. It's you have to be able to make something unique. I mean, the most simple example is like if you're gonna make the deed to your house, there's one of one, can't have five deeds to the same property or the same you know, ticket or the same painting. There has to be a way to say, "Hey, this is all that exists here, and there's nothing else." So I think that that's that's what I mean when I say scarcity. But you, uh, I'm not going to get into an argument about this because you're you're, you're going to clobber me.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I just no, no I, I just think people have to be more careful about the words they use, right? And I think I, I I know the intent that this person had, and I don't disagree with what he was trying or she was trying to say. It's I more think like I I. I you know, scarcity was the game in streetwear and culture. I believe going forward, differentiation is the new scarcity, irrespective of NFTs or not. It's like there's so much of everything now, right? And everything is so fragmented and segmented. And everyone can't always be about next. It's going to have to transition to best. And I think that that differentiation is what
1: it's going to be about. Well put. Where can people find you? Uh, and, and what are you looking for next? Oh, well, I'm just looking for exciting
0: opportunities, right? Uh, investment opportunities, board opportunities, advising opportunities. Where can I help? How can I help someone do their job better, build better, bigger companies, and change the way and, and have better experiences for these communities? Like, that's exciting as shit for me. So I love it. Best place to get me is Twitter, just at Rich Antonello, um, and uh, I. It's where I have the most fun as well.
1: Yeah, you you've you a great a great Twitter account, and I'd love to have you back and have a deep dive on on uh, on NFTs and crypto and Web three because uh, it sounds like 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 that's a big part of the future for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, again, not to be consistent, I don't just want to. I'm not chasing it. I want to participate in it enough so that I can help define how it behaves with the end communities and what it ultimately will become.